Welcome to the Global Governance Podcast, where we explore the future of governance. Each episode will look at a different global issue and how governance plays a key role in its solution. From climate change to gender equality, from corruption to peace and security, we invite experts to explore a thought-provoking game of what if and why not, positing a world in much closer international cooperation. And now your host, Augusto Lopez Claros. Enjoy. Annalise Palmer, also known as Lisa, is a research professor at the George Washington University's Columbian College of Arts and Sciences. And she's also an adjunct lecturer in environment and society at Georgetown University. Her book, Hot Hungry Planet, The Fight to Stop a Global Food Crisis in the Face of Climate Change, foretells the food security, environmental problems, and equity issues, which we very much are seeing playing out today. As an author and longtime journalist and writer focused on sustainability, uh, Ms. Palmer has covered the environment, food security, education, climate change, and science with a record of creating award-winning and impactful work. Um, thank you, Lisa, for speaking to us today. We are delighted you agreed to do so. I would like to begin, obviously, our discussion by introducing your book, Hot Hungry Planet, this, The Fight to Stop a Global Food Crisis in the Face of Climate Change, where you address, I think, a very topical subject, the challenges in global food security as they relate to climate change. You present three dominant trends in this area. A growing uh, global middle class demanding more meat in their diets. The process of environmental degradation, which we have seen playing out in recent decades. And a greater understanding of the importance of economic opportunity to eliminate poverty as as a third sort of trend. And in this last item, you highlight a better awareness of the interconnectedness of global food systems, combining social and uh, scientific elements. So to get started for our listeners, Lisa, could you elaborate on these trends and how they are presented and analyzed in your book? Thank you so much. Thank you, Augusto, and thank you for the kind introduction and and for having me on this podcast. I'm, I'm a listener, and so it's really nice to be here. So I I want to define first what I mean by food systems here. I'm referring to this complex web of activities um, that includes growing, catching, and otherwise producing food, processing it, transporting it, and consuming food. And so also related here are the issues concerning the food system, such as uh, the um, governance and economics of food production, its sustainability, the degree to which we waste food and how food production also affects the natural environment and the effect food has on the health of individuals and populations. So that's, you know, kind of just set the stage there. And so one of the trends that you hint at in your question is on the desires of the growing uh, global middle class to consume a more Western diet. And so we know that about 4 billion people like half the planet really are now becoming part of this global middle class and as they're changing their diets, as they seek more of a Western diet that's higher in animal protein, meaning 
more meat, more dairy products, more sugar, fats, and other um, resource-intensive foods. And so as our demographics shift and populations grow, sort of what is most important here is how diets will change with sort of this increasing affluence because it will infect our natural environment and sort of what we do with our land and how we apply our resources. So we know that the one of the basic like one basic paradox of food supply is that once people have sufficient um, funds to afford food, um, they almost immediately want better food, which kind of puts a, a greater strain on the food system because the, these foods are often more resource intensive. And so the second dominant trend that I cover in the book um, is the environmental degradation aspect. And so both um, what agriculture is doing to the environment, but also what the environment meaning climate change is doing to agriculture, how it's affecting it. And so environmental degradation and climate change, you know, really can undermine peace. And so it's really difficult to right now to prove this causality. But when we've seen this, you know, the ideas of water scarcity and how that can lead to social unrest and inflamed tensions in some circumstances that increase the likelihoods of armed conflict. And so I I tell the story in the book around Syria and kind of how that um, the drought really started inflaming um, sort of this uh, these tensions and driving people towards cities. And so we know that nearly half of the world's, I think, 40 least peaceful countries are those experiencing the highest number of ecological threats. And so I try to tell these stories in the book through the stories of the researchers and the scientists and the agronomists and the development leaders, um, the narratives of farmers and educators and innovators who really try to seek a, a sustainable food system that delivers this sort of a, a nutritional food while also satisfying their long-term um, food security in, in a more resilient way, in a way that's more um, gentle to the planet. And so, what we know is that there are many people are working hard on this subject and some are clearly and deeply frustrated. Many are frustrated by the lack of progress towards increasing crop production and trying to get the word out on the environmental risks around the world. And so we know um, here also that as agriculture relies on natural resources and our land, um, you know, the soil, water and biodiversity, you know, the more we degrade the, this environment, the more we you know, expand farmland and we use the resources, we use up the environment. And so when we convert forest to, forest to pastures, you know, I've seen this all over um, Latin America, you know, converting forest to pastures will almost certainly immediately mean that the soils will erode and, and wash away because just they don't have the depth of, of the soil column needed to retain that in the depth of the grasses. You know, we know that when we plant commodity crops like corn over and over and over again on the same land, again, I see that again, I saw it all over the Midwest where I grew up and farmers used to, to rotate crops, but they're getting more money for planting corn because it's, it's a commodity crop that's in high demand. Um, it depletes the soils without adding nutrients. And so we need, you know, healthy land and clean water and to preserve our biodiversity to really sustain our health as for us as humans and as species. And so in Hot Hungry Planet, I report on all these regional effects you know, from around the world um, and towards producing the foods that will meet the needs of the present without really trying to compromise what future 
generations will be able to uh, do. And I guess finally, uh, you also asked me to address in this last item, this awareness of this interconnectedness of food systems. Well, combining, you know, combining the social side of things, meaning you know, everything from economics to uh, our um, land rights and human rights to this, you know, scientific elements, you know, crop breeding and uh, the science of climate change and drought and forecasting. So I think even during the pandemic, and we all became a lot more aware of this shift in mindset or how our food systems are connected. And then, uh, you know, when we have a shock like COVID or when we have a shock like the war in Ukraine, you know, we have to remain aware um, that we will immediately have a twin crisis because climate change is this underlying factor uh, that we'll be seeing more and more of. Uh, we're seeing it play out now, but also in the coming years. Thank you, Lisa, for sort of bringing into the, the discussion this issue of the interconnectedness of global food systems. I think that you your answer is very, very, very interesting. Um, in the book, you emphasize the need to balance women's rights with considerations of food security. And I thought that this was a, an important contribution that your book makes. Uh, um, I think that uh, the role of women is very often ignored or not not given adequate attention on uh, when considering issues of you know economic development. In the book, you introduce the story of Safira, whose access to education through a Uganda Rural Development Training Program allowed her to increase harvest yields and achieve a higher level of economic prosperity. Now, my question is, in a nation where social norms do not promote female education, I took interest in the specific model implemented by this Uganda training program that promotes the education of rural girls while at the same time you know, boosting or promoting uh, community development. Um, education, as you state, is a vital part of promoting the status of women in rural societies and remains, it seems to me, an important step in increasing the efficiency of farming practices. Could you describe the attributes of this program that differ from traditional sort of education initiatives? Um, and along with this, what parts of this model can be applied to food security issues in other countries, perhaps beyond Sub-Saharan Africa? And what parts are sort of culturally specific to Uganda and therefore not replicable elsewhere in Latin America or in other places, for instance? I appreciate this question, Augusto. Especially I, you know, when I first set out to write this book, I did not plan on covering gender issues. That was not, not even what I thought of um, in terms of reporting the book. Uh, but it was clear and that gender became part of the story, a critical part of the story. And so when I, uh, I learned more about this program, I you know, wanted to bring the story up and that, you know, finding, you know, I, could have, I could have told many examples uh, of, this, of this kind of story. But you know, for me, I thought that Safira's story, also Catherine's story in the book, 
exemplify this. Um, so, you know, the African, the, the um, Ugandan Rural um, Development Training School for Girls, you know, I should mention is associated also with the African Rural University for Women, which has just graduated its eighth graduating class um, of 11 students. And so, um, some of the attributes that are unique to this girls' school is that it's a high school education where girls are trained for jobs that will help them stay in place, stay in the rural areas, rather than leave their community and seek employment in the city. So it's, it's really designed to uh, provide skills and training for girls to be able to, to remain in place. And so they select girls um, from the ages of 10 to 18 from the neediest families you know, or those who are orphaned. And the girls um, have an oral entrance exam, which includes like math, English, debate, and drama. And this drama test, which was really thought was interesting, is because uh, they needed uh, the storytelling capacity because running a radio show uh, for other women and girls in the country, in that part of the country, is part of the school's activities and initiatives. So another attribute of the school is this two-generation approach. You know, a mother isn't left behind. When the school has a break and in between semesters and in summer, uh, the mother comes to the school to attend um, day-long trainings uh, along with the girl. And they so they have this co-learning experience. And then the girl receives guidance on how to share her new skills with the family uh, when she returns home during school breaks. And so this links the education to rural development and helps provide uh, value back to the family. Uh, and also a leadership avenue for the girls. So when a girl is born, we know that when a girl is born to a woman who can read, um, that child is 50% more likely to survive to its fifth birthday than a child born to an illiterate woman. And so globally, we know that education improves food security, economic security, and resilience to climate change. And so you know, this I highlighted the program in this school because it does bring these, these things together. Uh, as well as teaches them about agricultural work uh, because you know, 80% of the women in that area are also the farmers. And so um, I also, one piece here that's really important uh, that's also captured in the chapter, you know, family planning is not a direct goal of the school, but numerous studies have found that remaining in high school is a key determinant of when girls and women begin their, their families. And so what people often don't realize that in this part of Uganda and Midwestern and Western Uganda, um, in this region, 40% of the girls are married by the time they're 18 and 10% are married before the age of 15. So child marriage and early childbirth affect a woman's overall health and, and then also perpetuates these levels of poverty and food insecurity because a girl lacks an education. They lack the ability to read and lack access to resources. And so uh, it's, you know, this is an area that may seem specific to Uganda, but it also applies to other areas around the world where child marriage is uh, a big issue. Um, and so ultimately kind of going back to that two generation approach, educating the parents is a, is a key to keeping the girls in school. Uh, so for instance, with um, Safira's help, uh, I think she worked with some 30 other women, including her mother, who were able to gain title to the land um, that they farmed, which allowed them to build a regional savings and, and credit cooperative that allowed them to then gain access to better seeds. 
and fertilizer. So this had a ripple effect. And so as Safira kept going back to school each semester, she would come home with more resources to help others in her family. So it, it, she was able to sort of pass along her knowledge. Um, I think because this chapter in my book really gets at the value of understanding population growth, uh, I also wanted to mention here that we really need to have this more realistic forecasting on the global food demands that are based on population growth because it, you know, you know, as we we think of how um, girls and women are responsible for their for their families, also how much they can have the ability to plan and space the births of their children, you know, sets them up to be able to be self-sufficient. And so that is um, an area that I feel, you know, it can be replicated, you know, around uh, the world, just providing, you know, women with more um, chances to have it, you know, complete their high school education, have something where an education that's relevant to them in place, you know, this as a rural development training program is really relevant to keeping the girls in rural areas rather than you know, getting a degree that they can only get a job if they were go, going to a bigger city. You know, as you were speaking, I was reminded of something that Amartya Sen, uh, my favorite economist, uh, said about, about women and development. He said that very often we think of women as being recipients of aid and assistance and help rather than dynamic agents of change. And the reason I like this, this example of the Uganda uh, training program is because it, it sees women in the latter in the latter role. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely the case because uh, you know one of the other important components here that I didn't necessarily elaborate on too much in the book, but is really creating a pipeline for these, these girls to be able to get a college education. Um, and so, the, you know, they're they're learning how to become uh, these guides in their villages, in their communities, to be agents of change, to, to have the skills and the ability to lift their voices and uh, provide help, and seeing it as a resource versus a burden on a community. So uh, that's that's absolutely in line with your thinking. In in the book, you additionally discuss the connection between food insecurity and civil unrest. And um, as you already mentioned a few minutes ago, you cite the case of Syria, you know, which illustrates how unstable corp production led to rising prices, migration to urban centers, which then precipitated civil unrest. And you made the point that these patterns have recurred in many other countries worldwide. Uh, and I found this, you know, fascinating. And I think it's something that is very seldom discussed in, in the media reporting, certainly on, on Syria. Uh, furthermore, for countries that depend on imports to feed their populations, you know, food security is also directly linked to sort of political viability, as we saw, for instance, in Egyptian bread subsidies and the, and the Arab Spring. These shocks, um, as you indicate, are an indicator of sort of the diminishing resilience to environmental disruptions in our global food system. Now, the question is, as, as climate change is likely to exacerbate these conditions, 
and further highlight the shortcomings and vulnerabilities in our food systems, do you predict higher levels of civil unrest um, due to food insecurity? And, and if so, you know, what ways do you recommend at the national and international level to strengthen food security systems and alleviate the risk of political unrest so that we don't get into this this kind of negative feedback loop, you know, where civil unrest and food insecurity feed on each other in very toxic ways? Well, yes, I, in short answer, yes, I, I believe climate change will exacerbate, exacerbate these conditions and shocks to our food system. You know, from my reporting, countries that can provide social safety nets and build resilience in food systems before disaster strikes, uh, areas you know, like that will be able to weather disruptions and avoid political unrest. Um, but that's not easy to do, and you have to have the political will and foresight to do that. But we're, you know, we're now seeing some really sophisticated tools in play in this space. Just recently here in Washington, D.C. at the Wilson Center, I uh, attended the launch and a discussion by the Water, Peace and Security Partnership. And because I learned about this new tool they have, this global early warning tool for predicting water conflicts, for instance. And so thus, you know, we have these food security conflicts that are precipitated first by water conflicts. Um, and or maybe in the same at the same time and in the tool looks at and has already been able to explore and examine um, you know how to identify the conflicts before the conflicts can occur uh, so that they measure soil and, and vegetation as well as uh, land you know looking at land cover uh, and environmental degradation in the area and um, they use sort of this machine learning uh, methodology to forecast a conflict over, over months at a time, or maybe over the next 12 months. And so, yeah, I'm seeing these, you know, these kinds of things at the national, and they, they're actually quite uh, regionalized as well. It's at the national, but at a subnational level, uh, that's really important because it's, you know, I'm going to, I believe that we'll be able to see some of the tools that governments can use and development agencies and so on to identify conflict hotspots before violence erupts and understand what the local context is to be able to bring then food and water to different you know, markets, to different areas. Uh, and, you know, I think, you know, they, they, ha they are able to sort of update their models uh, every couple of months as they receive updated forecasts. And so, you know, this is a, this is a, a, a bigger effort um, by a lot of different agencies that have come together to, to work on this. But, now, despite these tools, we know that our best efforts um, you know, really are to grow crops and take care of our land, water, and biodiversity so that they are in their, their healthiest standing as possible to be reflexive to shocks. And so a big part of this is really listening to what the experts in natural resources are telling us already. And they've been telling, you know, I reported on a lot of these stories in my book 10 years ago. Um, uh, you know, first started 10 years ago in reporting these. But right now we're seeing it all all play out, um, especially similar crisis to what I described in the Syria chapter. Um, we're seeing that in Somalia and Ethiopia. Ethiopia really is ready, is uh, heading towards its um, I mean, fifth or sixth, I can't remember, consecutive failed rainy season. 
which could you know prolong a drought already um, affecting some 24 million people. You know, Somalia is facing a really un unprecedented global crisis, and you know, people already have lost their lives. Um, you know, from food security issues. Um, and then, of course, we've got the war in Ukraine that's compounded this effect. And so because of the wheat trade has been delayed. And so here, you know, it's it's almost a very similar situation playing out that, that I wrote about in the Syria chapter. So and unfortunately, history seems to be repeating itself. Um, how do we how do we work on this? You know, it's it's really getting us out of this cycle. How can we work on these? And sometimes it's really having some of these transboundary agreements where we can uh, build up resilience, identify it, and using tools um, such as, you know, the the water peace and security tool, which can help help direct uh, and and uh, soften the edges of, of where the conflict might occur. A related subject um, that comes from uh, you know this nexus between um, you know food security and uh, civil unrest. Uh, concerns the engagement of uh, you know global food relief agencies, which you describe in in your book, and and you know you indicate that they can contribute to to the management of hunger, famine worldwide, and have played a very very important role in that in that process. However, you also note, and I guess we have we have seen this from media reports over the last several years, that sometimes. Um, uh, intensifying support for one country may put pressures on funding and resources, right, at the expense of supporting, you know, other, you know, needy countries as well. You saw this uh, in the crisis in the in the Middle East, the refugee crisis in the Middle East a few years ago, where food relief agencies became overwhelmed by the need to divert resources to Syria. Uh, and then this, of course, you know, may have been at the cost of, you know, getting resources to places like Ethiopia and other worthy recipients as well. So my question is, how do we how do we ensure that that development agencies remain engaged, you know, in a variety of regions worldwide? And how do we maintain financial assistance for food insecurity? when international attention sometimes can be captured, you know, by the new cycles, you know, the new crisis, you know, in some corner of the world, which then leads to these tensions on, on, on scarce resources. Yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. But, you know, we need to see that investing in food security and we need to see investing in climate resilience um, related to the environment are matters of national security and ensuring peace. You know, they're, they're unseparated. So as much as we maintain assistance, we must also provide this aid before disaster strike, the aid in building resilience, the aid in developing more climate smart activities, the aid in educating women and educating girls. So right now we're seeing this combined um, impacts of climate change, conflict and unsustainable agriculture's practices, rising food prices by the war in Ukraine. You know, they're, they're driving high levels of, of, of food insecurity you know, I, it's interesting here you ask about the sort of aid. You know, I'm, I'm seeing, um, you know, places like the World Food Program, you know, conducting and, and collaborating with places such as the Stockholm International Peace Research, Research Institute, SIPRI, 
um, you know, where they're, they're examining this, uh, these, th you know, these threats together. And um, countries you know, facing these high levels of ecological threat are statistically likely to be those where peace is at its most tenuous. They also tend to be marked by fragility. Um, they just can't, you know, don't have the capacity to withstand shocks. And so um, you have also observed how, and, and, and talked to people and learned how, you know, at the UN Security Council, you know, they've got the Peace Building Commission, for instance. You know, how can they make sure that its support in conflict areas also includes the effects of climate change and environmental issues that could jeopardize any peace building work? So, you know, it, it's, it's like I said, it, these interconnections just don't stop. You know, I, I try to bring them up as much as I can throughout my book, and I, I'm ready to write a whole other book at this point because I'm seeing so much more play out right in front of me. Uh, you, know, con you know, countries facing these high levels of ecological threats, um, you know, really are having, are just, are just quite fragile. Um, we know that, that conflict and insecurity are some of the primary drivers of hunger and, and, and food uh, crises. Um, so uh, I, I think we also have seen this, these, you know, as we look at the peacekeeping operations side of things, um, the United Nations deploys, you know, they're, they're in countries that are highly exposed to climate change and other acute environmental problems. and and. Um, you know, we need to ensure that measures to address these environmental issues also can contribute to the peace and also, you know, do not increase risks for conflict. And it's really by connecting these issues um, when we're investing in preparedness and resilience and um, just, you know, now preparing how we tackle the next pandemic, you know, for ourselves, you know, we must be able to tackle what other future extremes will happen down the line. Uh, what you know, whether it's you know forest fires or storms or drought, and so um, you know again, I think it's you know we know that any kind of environmental crisis that we see coming down the pipe will make a return st to stability that much harder. You know, it seems to me that this nexus between climate change, population growth, you know, food security. It's a very dynamic one, and I have no doubt that if you had the time and the resources, you could come up with your book, a kind of a revised edition of your book every every four or five years that would be, you know, a completely new look at that particular landscape. So please, please do think along those lines. I think we, we need this kind of, you know, very interesting insight. But let me let me raise another issue with you, which has to do with, you know, the possible role of technology in in addressing issues of food security. Um, I took a special interest in your analysis of uh, Dundi, this climate uh, smart village in Gujarat, in India. Um, this solar powered uh, water pump you reported on stands as a kind of an innovative solution to stabilize crop uh, production among uh, small scale farmers. As you describe in your book, solar power irrigation provides the opportunity for low cost energy, as well as an incentive to conserve water uh, by excess energy being sold on the grid. And this allowed farmers to grow year long as previously they had to irrigate without electricity. Um, 
which then led to providing a greater variety of crops with a higher mar marketability and so on. Um, at what level are small-scale renewable uh, energy systems currently being implemented in agricultural societies? Uh, do you see uh, opportunities for expansion, or is this just specific to you know to the India setting? Could we see this kind of thing more often in in Africa and Latin America and and beyond the solar? You know, how do you see? Uh, innovations in renewable energy promoting food security. So I've seen you know growth of these small uh, scale renewable energy systems and and agricultural societies around the world, uh, from the pilot projects starting with the farmers cooperatives in Dundee um, in Gujarat state, and also I went to uh, several different uh, climate smart sort of agricultural systems. These these small scale. Uh, Farm, farms with kind of access to different technologies uh, in Haryana and Punjab state in northern India, as well as in Colombia. And so what's really important here is that it's not the same uh, small system in each place. While in uh, Gujarat state, they're really focused on having access to renewable energy to power the irrigation, because irrigation was a was a big piece of how they could diversify and have uh, sustained production. Um, versus a dryland crops, they could they were only able to produce millet in in one season, and so uh, they were able to then have have a greater diversity of crops as well as some cash crops that they could sell at the market. Um, in Haryana, you know, the, the they had different technological uh, changes that they made where they applied, um, they were able to plant differently so that they didn't have to, to irrigate as much. Um, and the same thing in, in maybe in uh, Punjab state, they were able to look at ways to uh, determine how much fertilizer to use because the they were over fertilizing the crops. Uh, and this, was, this has been, uh, I guess, a detriment to really the groundwater there. So, you know, we know that the climate smart agriculture that system of, of these agricultural practices is growing globally um, and even showing up here in the United States. You know, the most recent Inflation Reduction Act um, here will invest some 40 billion in climate smart agriculture in the United States. And so it's really the single largest investment in climate smart agriculture to date. And so we'll see, we'll, you know, with that, we will see advancement in regenerative farming practices. Uh, such as planting cover crops, reducing tillage, uh, pasturing livestock, and how and how we use agroforestry, as well as addressing some of the renewable energy needs on the farms. But around the world, these small-scale um, sustainable ag programs are working because with the numerous at, at country and regional and uh, specific levels, because each of the needs is different. And so uh, I think that's really the key here is that whether um, and they have these, they have examples all over the world now, you know, whether it's Italy, Moldova, Georgia, you know, um, Switzerland, or Kyrgyzstan. Um, and can, you know, they've got separate kinds of different uh, systems that they're using, whether it's uh, you know, type, different types of um, sort of resilient systems they're trying to build up to the effects in those regions from climate change. Uh, same same thing in Cambodia, Sri Lanka, Somalia, Egypt, Ecuador, even Saint Lucia in the in the Caribbean. 
you know, the climate change is worsening some of the already um, vulnerable conditions of smaller farmers. So these these this these systems is not a set of practices that can be applied universally, but it's it's a special approach that takes a look at what are the threats and sort of how can we best uh, sort of embed these embed some solutions using the local context. And that's really what's been driving some of the successes here. Um, it also, you know, they for some of the places that I've seen, it also has meant avoiding risk, which, um, you know, as an economist, you, you see as um, a key part of this, you know, agriculture producers are business people. And so in some places, such as in Colombia, some of the climate smart agriculture um, methods is actually to not produce, not plant, not buy the seed and, and sort of let a, a fields remain fallow because they know that um, the rains will not come, for instance, during a, an El Nino, or a La Nina, I forgot which one, <laughs> season, um, because of, you know, they know that they won't be getting the kinds of rains they need to support this crop. And so sometimes uh, some of the solution is just to avoid taking that financial risk. Um, so it, it's been really interesting to see it applied in many different areas. Um, Lisa, thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I really thank you for the very worthwhile, very interesting insights that you have um, um, provided, um, especially on the intersectionality inter, uh, of global food security and climate change. Now, as I look at your distinguished career, um, it seems to me you have been an accomplished scholar in food system resilience, the environment, sustainability. And so to end this discussion, I wanted to ask you about your predictions for the future of this, this field. It is obviously vitally important, you know, um, again, to come back to some of the trends that you have mentioned not only you know, the possibility of accelerating climate change, the fact that we are still in a period of rapid population growth, um, the, the uh, interactions you know, with uh, civil unrest and political instability and so on, you know, to solve these crises that you have outlined, you know, how must we reshape our mindset towards uh, food security issues. And how do you see the trends that you have mentioned in your, in your podcast, you know, fitting into this new model of, of thinking? I'm, I'm quite heartened uh, now to hear that so many more voices are at the table uh, discussing this issue. Uh, to answer your question, I think we must really reshape our mindset to thinking that um, this is not someone else's problem. You know, food security, uh, amid a global changing climate needs everyone here. We need every voice at the discussion table. We need men and we need women. We need voices from marginalized communities, especially indigenous voices. We need land managers and conservationists. We need businesses and agricultural extension agents, you know, because it will take that. You know, we need a shift to, um, we need to shift some of these incentives for food producers to encourage these smaller farms and to promote more nutrient density of foods over this quantity of yields that we have. Um, so we, we need this shift in mindset because we need solutions at all levels and from you know, voices in communities at all levels. And so 
I think for this, it will take new leadership and new governance, as well as in, you know, innovation and advances in how we regenerate our food systems that will promote um, more yields while also preserving natural resources for the future. You know, so solutions here really um, must make business sense, but they also must provide you know, healthy options for our populations. And so I think in this way, in every way possible, it really goes back to what we first started talking about here is investing in women um, who will empower the future here, especially in much of the developing world where they hold uh, the reins of agriculture. So, you know, I guess it, to end the conversation, I just really want to leave everybody with this, uh, you know, this understanding from my point of view of somebody who's looked at this for, for many, many years, um, that, you know, food security amid climate change is a global problem. It's a problem that we will see for many, many years to come. Um, is that we know it's a problem that cannot be solved on its own. It cannot be solved without an increased global cooperation. You know, this problem is something that we need the international community to act together on. Thank you for listening to the Global Governance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. To learn more, please visit globalgovernanceforum.org and join the conversation. 